poem for Proverbs. Okay, so I gotta deep dive this thing and really understand my role. I go where you lead and go beyond what I know. Are you sure? Because I plan. I tend to execute. I follow through. And you say your wisdom does not lead to execution, but birth. Whew. So this difference between starting a thing and making it new is decided between what I do on my own and what I give to you. It's the mouse and the wheel versus the bird in the sky. And the path we take depends on whose sight we rely. Okay. Okay. David Nasser. Is it on now? Thank you. It's such an honor to be at this incredible church again. I, I love being here. Uh, I love the Northridge family. All of the campuses have always been such a blessing. And honestly, I, I love your pastor. Pastor Brad is such a stud. Can we just give God the glory and him honor for just, um, I know you know him as just a great you know, teacher of God's word and just a, a pastor and a shepherd of his people, but I just know him as a friend and he's just been a true one in my life and I'm just so thankful for him. Uh, he uh, assigned to me uh, the, the, the book of Proverbs because we are in this series right now called the Proverbial New Year, you know, sermon series. And uh, I, I'm excited about getting to, to plug in and, and to kind of to look at the book of Proverbs together. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would, uh, get them out and we'll be today uh, in one particular passage uh, which is Proverbs 17:9. And while you're going there, let me just tee it up by saying that we are studying one of the three wisdom literatures in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. So obviously, the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job and the book of Proverbs are fatherly advice. And as they give us this wisdom, right, mother wisdom uh, dispensed to us, uh, this is the kind of stuff that, that actually gets into the trenches of your life and when we apply this wisdom can really help us. And today, today, that what we want to talk about is something that is offered to us in, in the realm of healing. And when I say that, that seems really easy to receive until maybe I back up a little bit and say, today healing is offered through addressing something called unforgiveness. Now, the second I said that, and the second I told you that we're going to be in uh, Proverbs 17, 9, and some of you finally opened up your app or opened up your Bible and read the passage, or I said the word forgiveness, I know that some of you's muscle memory around that word is this idea of a situation in your past that maybe has been quarantined where you're like, God, you're allowed in all these different areas of my life, but you're not allowed in this one. 
And I want you to know that God loves you so much today that although you might have a little bit of a tightening up thinking, oh, David is about to talk about forgiveness and he's talking about healing and he wants me to maybe let that scab get ripped off. I want you to know that God today wants you to have the courage to know that, that what can happen in a moment like this when we allow the Holy Spirit in is something that maybe we don't think is possible but is actually possible. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about forgiveness today, and I'd like to do it by reading out of Proverbs a, a calling to let love prosper and let there be unity where there's division and to really break down the walls or a building that has become an obstacle in your perpetual growth relationship with God and with others by bringing forgiveness into the picture by reading Proverbs 17, 9. Let's look at this together. Love prospers. Love prospers. Let me say that again. Love prospers. That means love grows. Love excels. Love gets on the way in the right direction. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven. But dwelling on it separates close friends. Now, 127 times in Scripture, this idea of forgiveness comes up. Most of the time, not as a suggestion but as a command for believers in Scripture. And one of the reoccurring themes of the book of Proverbs is this idea of forgiveness, but I chose this particular passage out of Proverbs about forgiveness because of the idea of a dwelling, because what, what is being taught to us today is this idea that when we let unforgetfulness, right, kind of dwell, become a house, find its own place in our life, it becomes something that hinders us from prosperity. And God loves us so much that he wants us to prosper. He doesn't just want our love affair with him to prosper. He wants our love affair with others to prosper. God wants you as a dad to prosper in your love affair with your wife. God wants you as a, as a, as a person to prosper in your love affair with your friends. He wants you to prosper in your love affair with your children. God wants in those relationships that you have that are worthwhile for you not just to settle for average, but to want the goods. To want the treasure. And he has so much more in store for us. And he says one thing that hinders us. One thing that keeps us in good when it could be great. Is when we let something dwell in us. Called spite. Unforgetfulness. Anger. Wounding. And love prospers. When we let go of a wrong. Forgetfulness at its very core is this idea of letting go. The very word actually means to release. And it's this idea that you and I would come into a moment where today I say we're going to talk about forgetfulness, we're going to talk about forgiving, and immediately something gets brought up in your past and you think about maybe a wounding that came your way, a hurt that came your way. Maybe you were misquoted, maybe you were misunderstood, maybe somebody misdirected you, maybe somebody mistreated you, and something happened and you look at that and you're not discounting what happened. You're just saying that is something that was a wounding, that is something that was big. But God is bigger. And God is calling me to say, if I have been greatly forgiven, this is for believers here, if I have been greatly forgiven at the foot of the cross, then I can be a great forgiver at the foot of the same cross, and I can let go. And it's just this great gift. 
And I love this passage because it actually has that word dwelling in it. And, and, and in that accordance, I, I just want to bring up something to you. Have you ever heard of the term spite house before? <laughs> I hadn't heard of it until about two weeks ago, but apparently... Uh, your city, uh, the city of Detroit, has one of the world's most famous spite houses, all right? And so look it up, and if you look up the word spite house, a whole lot of stuff will come up. But I want to show you just a few. Uh, here's a spite house right here. Uh, a spite house is the house on the left. Now, let me define a spite house for you. As soon as I say it, you're going to go, oh, that's a spite house. A spite house is literally a house. It's literally a dwelling that has either been built, constructed, or modified, all right, out of spite, a spite house is something that is designed to stop an injustice by exercising your right at the cost of our own determinants. So the guy on the, on the right of this picture, the big khaki-colored house, right, that guy was building a house, and what we don't see in the picture is across the street, across that road, is actually the beach, the ocean. And so that guy on the right decided he's going to buy this incredibly expensive piece of property, and he started constructing it. And while he was constructing it, right, the, the, the framing goes up, and, and they, they realize, like, there's going to be a lot of windows, obviously, from the living room downstairs so that you can enjoy the beach across the street. And what the guy didn't know, though, was that right to the left is this little sliver, this, like, partial of land, this, this driveway worth of land that somebody else owed, and the guy that owned the house on the left, before it was a house on the left, it wasn't a house on the left, it was just a little piece of property, contacts the guy who's building the house on the right and says, hey, I have this little sliver of land that belongs to me between you and the ocean view, and I'd like to sell it to you. And the guy on the right thought, no, I'm not going to buy that. It's just sitting empty. It's just a lawn. What do I care if it's just a lawn? It's almost like a walkway. And so the guy on the left said, if you're not going to buy it, out of spite, I'm going to build something. <laughs> And he built that there. And when you walk into that house, guess what it is? Because of the sheetrock and everything else, it's literally, y'all, 55 inches wide. This guy built a 55 inches wide house, and then he moved into it out of spite. He said, you know what? If you're not going to buy my lot, you're not going to get to see the ocean. And every day, this dude lives in a 55 inch wide house, and he gets to win, but he gets to lose. Because <laughs> he lives in a 55 inch house. And so you do something because you have the legal right to do it. You do something because you do it to get back at somebody, but you do it to hurt someone, but you've constructed a dwelling that actually ends up harming you. You want to see another spite house? Let me show you this one. This one was built in the 20s, and it was built when a husband and a wife decided to get a divorce, and in the divorce proceedings, in the, in the discussions with the judge, the husband said, I need to live in the house that we reside in now, so she can leave, because I need this particular layout, and this is important to me, and the wife said, no, I need this particular layout, and they kept fighting over it, and so the, finally, the judge said, the one thing we both know is that there's money here, all right, in this, in this divorce settlement, and so the judge ordered the husband to build the wife an exact replica of the same house but what he didn't specify when he made that decree was that uh, he, he didn't specify where it needed to be so you know what he did that man divorced the woman and then he went and found this lot in the middle of a salt field where nothing can grow and every day just smells like sulfur and he built her that house out of spite and so you know what he's saying if you hurt me I hurt you and every day he wins but his own children have to live in it. And every day he loses. 
And you can look up spite houses, and over and over again, they're literally houses built out of spite. And the reason I chose this particular passage out of Proverbs to pull out, you know, this idea of, of forgiveness is that when we don't forgive, what we do is we dwell. We built up a house, a spite house that takes over in our life. And every day we go, David, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know the wounding that came my way. You don't know the hurt that somebody afflicted upon my life. And every day you hang on. And every day you go, I have a right. And every day you continue to, to walk into it. And you dwell in it. And every day you win, but every day you lose. And the power of the gospel is not just saving grace, but sustaining grace. The power of the gospel is this wrecking ball that doesn't just come to, to wreck the wall, right? That separates us from a holy God and brings us to unity. But it's also a wrecking ball that today wants to maybe tear down some spite houses that have become places of dwelling in us. And every day we go into them and we think we're winning because we have every right to continue to be mad at this person. And God says, you know what? I'm not discounting what happened and you have every right. But why would you settle? for unforgetfulness, when I can give you healing. Because that's when love prospers. And I mean, you're hearing that, and you're like, I just don't necessarily want love to prosper against that person who hurt me. No, no, no. Love prospers in every aspect of your life. Love prospers in your walk with God. Love prospers in your walk with your children. Love prospers in the people that were trying to get you to let them in, but you don't let them in because there's something broken in the way you trust others because someone betrayed your trust a long time ago. And the healing power of the gospel today can be, God says, I want to do a revolutionary work in your life. Some of you are hearing this and you're going, I've tried it. It's impossible. I want to tell you, it's possible. With God, it's possible for you to find healing. And I want to get practical with you and show you three ways that we can find forgiveness. Three ways that we can biblically begin to forgive. So if you're taking notes, here's the first one. The first one is, we want to identify the actual hurt. Let me ask a question for you, uh, just to you, if, if you've ever been truly wounded, all right? What actually happened that hurt you? Who neglected you? Maybe, maybe today when I say this, this is very personal for you. You're thinking, my father neglected me. When I was 13 years old, my father said to me, I'm, I'm just thinking of an example out loud here. My father told me and my, my brother when I was 13 years old, I'm divorcing your mom, but I'm not divorcing you. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. And the only thing that was worse than his presence was his continuous absence. And it's not that he wasn't a father. He was a father to other kids, but he was never a father to me. And today I'm sitting here and I'm doing all these woundings and all, this, all these broken promises and all these different things. And when I think about what happened to me and when, David, you stand here and say, God wants you. He actually commands you as a believer to forgive the first person that comes to my mind, sadly, is someone who was supposed to be a great provider. And he was. He was a great provider of hurt. And I think about my father. Or maybe it's not your father. I mean, what actually is the identify of that hurt? Maybe it's not just a neglected father. Maybe it's an unfaithful spouse. Maybe it's a betraying friend. Maybe it was that demeaning boss. Name the wrong. And once you name that actual wrong, if you have the courage this morning to actually face it and name the wrong, go ahead and condemn it. Don't excuse it, but condemn it. But the second step isn't just to name the wrong. Are you ready for this? but it's to actually put a price tag on it. Not just to name the wrong, but the second step is to actually articulate what's owed. 
beyond naming the wrong, then here's the question. If it is, for example, my father hurt me, then my next question past that is, what do you feel would be the first step? What do you think is the first step of paying back what was robbed, of mending what was broken? What would be the first step? Maybe you say, well, it, it needs to be someone actually saying the words to me, I am sorry. I've never heard I am sorry for what happened to me. Or I repent for having blank, 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 blank. Or I regret that things went this way. Or I betrayed trust when I did this and this and this. And so what is owed? And so the first step is what happened. The second step is what is owed. And here's the third one. You ready for this one? Here's the third one. Go on Twitter and post about it. <laughs> no. Here's the third one. You ready? What happened? what is owed, and then forgive. 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 Release. I know you're looking at me and you're thinking, is it that easy? It's not. It's beyond not easy. It's not natural. I mean, I don't know, maybe it is for you, but it's certainly not natural for me. I mean, the first time that my counselor told me this about forgiveness Hey, David, let's just get in the weeds here, you know? Like, let's not fool ourselves. And I, I, honestly, the first time somebody said that to me, I was like, I, I don't want to rip the scab off an old wound. She was like, look, it's really dirty in there. We got to get in there and clean it up. You're fooling yourself if you don't think it's emotionally, you know, completely right now, you know, like infected. All right, so let's get in there and fix it. My wife was like, it's infected. All right, so, you know, so we got in there and we finally like addressed it. I said, this is what happened. And then it was, what do you need to hear? And I said what I needed to hear. And then she looked at me and she said, well, Forgive. And I don't know how it is with you, but, but I'm from Iran. <laughs> I got a little Middle Eastern in the blood, you know what I'm saying? Plus, I'm a tiny guy, so I got a little Napoleon syndrome going on as well. So I don't know how it is with you, but y'all pray for me. Because for me, here's how it normally is in my natural bent. You mess with me, I kill your mother. That's kind of how it rolls. And so this counselor's looking at me, and she's like, you know, hey, address what happened. And so finally, I'm like emotionally back engaged, and I'm like, this is what happened. And then she's like, what does it need to cost? I'm like, here's the price tag, and it needs to start with, I own what happened, and here's what happened. And then she's like, she has the audacity to say to me, now forgive. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And she looked at me, and she goes, what do you think? I go, that doesn't feel natural. And she said something. She said, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And the expectation for a non-believer is mustered up out of your own flesh, mustered up out of your own, like, gumption. You know, there's only so much you can handle. You might be able to, on your own, forgive someone of a slight thing. But if somebody has really wounded you, how in the world is it natural? And what she was reminding me was, it's not natural. But, beloved, we're not a natural people. We are a supernatural people. And we were unfairly supernaturally, ridiculously forgiven at the foot of the cross at salvation. And it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there. Because to whom much is given, much is required. This isn't me out of my own duty. This is me out of worship and delight coming to a place where I go, Jesus, I'm going to let you in. Here's another way to say forgive, uh, the way my counselor put it. And I paid 175 bucks an hour, but I'm giving it to you for free, all right? The way my counselor put it to me was, David, address what happened. Name what the price tag needs to be. And then 
You want to know like how it actually works on the forgiveness part? Invite Jesus into that moment. Invite him in. Let him in. Some of you know what I'm talking about when I say you've had this imaginary conversation with the person that hurt you. You have it every morning when you're shaving. <laughs> you give them in your mind, in your imagination, a piece of your mind. You have that conversation, you know, as you're brushing your teeth. You have it when you're slow in traffic. You just think, you know, or you see them post something and you're like, you hypocrite. You're posting about leadership. I worked for you. <laughs> you're posting about love. I know what it was like to be hurt by you. You're, you're telling, you, you put on Facebook this picture of like the perfect family. I know the mirage that that is because I was under your spell of like hurt and, and all these different things. And some of you know what I'm talking about. But, and, and, and you have this imaginary conversation with this person over and over and over and over again. What does it look like in your imagination to address what happened, see the cost of what it is, and then after you see the cost, to hand the bill to Jesus? Or in that imaginary conversation to invite Jesus in the conversation. And all of a sudden it's not you and your ex-husband having the conversation. But Jesus gets invited in the room and you hand him the mic. And you say, Jesus, you can speak from now on in this conversation. Are we afraid that Jesus would be too soft on the person that hurt us? Are we afraid that Jesus is going to discount the hurt that came upon us? No, Jesus knows everything that it cost us. So much that he gave us life on a cross for the woundings of our life. And Jesus will be our great advocate. He will not discount what happened to us. But at the same time, what Jesus brings to the moment is the supernatural ability to say, you know what? I'm done trying to fix this on my own. Or I'm done, honestly, look at me, looking at the one person in the conversation to beg in to help pay the bill that they probably are not either interested in paying are unable to pay and I'm coming to the one who can and I'm inviting him in so that I can find healing a few years ago I was um, driving to go to an event to speak in Florida and it was a five-hour drive but it already turned into like uh, like a construction maze you know a rude construction maze that was like getting me to get to the beach a lot later than I was supposed to I tell you that to say I was kind of in, a, in an urgent mindset of like, I got to be on stage at 7 o'clock at this conference to speak. I'm already running late. So I was just going as fast as I could down this one highway called 331. And as I was going down 331, all of a sudden, as frustrating as it was with all the construction, they had a detour. And so I take this left, and I'm already like upset. Like, man, I'm going to be even more late. And I, and I go all the way down, and I get on this other road. Not the 331 that I was going down to Florida, I panhandle with. But all of a sudden now, 10 minutes later, down 231. And as I'm going down 231, I'm thinking, I'm even going to be later. I end up in a city that I hadn't been in in years and years named Dothan, Alabama. And I get in Dothan, and as soon as I got in Dothan, I saw the sign Dothan. I thought, wow, in all the years I've gone to the beach down 331, I guess I've never thought about the fact that down 231, there's this city Dothan. And, I, and it reminded me of how, how I used to live when I was in middle school and in high school. I used to live around that city, Dothan. I used to live in a place called Enterprise, Alabama. And, and Dothan was like the big town. It was the one with the mall, you know? And, and, and I'm driving down Dothan, and I'm, and I'm late, and I, and I get to the south part of town, and as, and I'm, as I'm just fast trying to get out of there and catch up, make up a little bit of time, all of a sudden, I, um, I see to my right this 
this tennis club, this golf course area. And I saw it and, and it and just dawned on me that I had been there before when I was a kid, when I, when I was in the ninth grade or 10th grade or in high school. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I remember that place. You know, back when like, I used to live in Enterprise, I, I'd come to Dothan and, and I thought, I've been there for something. And, I, and it just, I just thought about it for just a second, but I kept driving. And I'm driving and about five minutes later, I'm past Dothan now. It's like Dothan's behind me. I'm running really, really late. And I just start crying. I don't know what's going on. I mean, I'm literally in the car. And, and all of a sudden, I'm like, <laughs> and, then, and then the next thing you know, I'm just crying. And I'm not like that. That's not normal for me. So I see this Wendy's, you know, about 200 yards in front of me. And so I look like at the fast food restaurant. So I pull up, and I go into the parking lot at the Wendy's. And I'm just sitting there in a parking spot, and I'm just crying. People are coming out of the Wendy's. They can see me crying, you know, through the, through the window. They're like... Is the frosty that good? I, mean, I don't know what they're thinking, but it's just, it's just weird. I know it's awkward. And I'm sitting there, and I'm crying. And I'm like, what is happening to me? Like, my hand's starting to shake a little bit. And then it dawned on me what had triggered. It dawned on me that when I was in the ninth grade, I had been in Dothan. That was the last time I'd been in the city of Dothan, in the ninth grade. And I'd been actually at that tennis place that I had just driven by. And then all of a sudden, I remembered I was on the tennis team for Enterprise, and uh, we were playing Dothan, and we were playing them at that place. I was in the ninth grade, and I was all of a sudden in a match that mattered. Normally, I was the seventh seed, and the seventh seed didn't really matter. You were like the seventh best on the team. But we were at a moment where we were three to three tied in matches, and the next match, the winner of the next match, got to take the team to the state, the state tournament. And Dothan always went to state, and Enterprise never went to state, but all of a sudden, we'd had a really good run that day, and all of a sudden, it's three to three, and the winner of the next match gets to, to, to hold up the flag and say, we beat you, and we're going to state, you're not going to state, and it came down to where everybody was done with their match, and it was me against this other guy from Dothan, and we were going to play, and the winner of that match was going to get to take the team to state, and it was on me. It was on my racket. And normally nobody ever watched the seven seeds play, all right? But everybody else was done, and they were there, and they were sitting there in the stands. So my entire team was there to root me on. My tennis coach was there. It was an incredible moment. The girls got done early, so they were there. So the girls were watching. The girls were watching. And not just the girls from my team. But the girls from the other team were watching. And there was this other girl from this other team that I really loved. I remember thinking, one day we'll get married. We didn't, but that's a whole other sermon. But I'm just telling you, she was there. And so these girls were there, and these guys were there. And then my dad, who never, ever came to one tennis match, had somehow found the time to drive 30 minutes from Enterprise to Dothan, and he was there. And so I remember thinking in the back of my mind, getting ready during warm-ups, like, this is insane. I mean, I'm going to take the whole school to the state. My dad's here. He's going to be proud of me. My, this girl is my future wife. This is going to be, we're going to tell our kids about this moment. This is going to be insane. My whole team is here. This is so awesome. We get going, and the next thing you know, within 30 minutes, it's 6-0, first set. That means he won six games. I won zero. And all of a sudden, the conversation's no longer like, can you win? It's like, can you get a game? And I'm looking really, really bad in front of my team. I'm looking really, really bad in front of my future wife. I'm looking really, really bad in front of my dad. So I go sit down between the sets. We've got one more set to play. And I sit, as soon as I sit down to towel off, I'm kind of feeling embarrassed because he's like really beating me badly, right? It's six, oh, six games to zero. And as I'm sitting there and I'm kind of feeling embarrassed and I'm in the ninth grade, I have this like 
third grade moment, all right? I stand up, and I grab my racket, and I looked at the guy as he stood up that I was playing, and I said, hey, you ever seen the inside of one of these rackets? And he looked confused. He goes, what? And as soon as he said that, I took this graphite racket that's pretty fragile, and I just broke it. One big hit, and I just broke it. The racket literally collapsed. Like, the, the upper part of the racket just collapsed. And as soon as it collapsed, like the tennis strings and everything just collapsed, I go, this is what they look like on the inside. As if to say, look how cool I am. I can break an $80 racket. <laughs> so third grade. And I threw the racket in my bag. I was just honestly embarrassed, so I was just trying to be cool. And it's not cool. I know it's not cool. And I picked up another racket, and I was swinging it like I was kind of going back to go to the second set so that he could serve. And as soon as I got to where I was about to turn around for this guy to, to serve to me for the second set, as soon as I got there, I heard my dad. He goes, David, David, David. And I turned around and noticed that my dad had gotten up out of the stands, had walked over to the, to the gate, had opened it up, had walked onto the tennis court. And what everybody was watching was saying my name. He goes, come here. His bald head, military Iranian father, bald head, red. He goes, come here. And I said, Dad, I'm playing a tennis match. He goes, come now. And I walked over to my dad, and as soon as I got close enough to him, he reared back, and he slapped me. And I'm telling you, the left side of my face was redder than the right side that he slapped because just shame and embarrassment. I remember the gasp. It was almost like synchronized. 25, 30 people went, <gasps> and one guy started giggling. I remember just standing there, and I'm just shaking, and my dad's looking at me. And he said, give me the racket. And I took the racket out of my hand, and I gave it to my dad, and he reached down into my tennis bag, and he picked up the racket that I had broken, the other racket. And he handed me the racket, and he said, you will play with this racket. And I turned around, and I walked over to the other side, and this guy had beat me 6-0 with a good racket. And now here I was with a broken racket, and he's looking at me, and I said, just serve. And what was so much more demeaning than being slapped was the next nine minutes or eight minutes it took for this guy to finish me off with a broken racket. And I played this guy with a broken racket. And then we got in the van, and we drove home for 30 minutes, and nobody ever said anything that day. Saw my dad that night, never said anything. Saw him the next day, nothing. And 20-something years later, I'm running late, and I get a detour, and all of a sudden, I drive by the very place where so much shame was blanketed over me as a ninth grader. And you fast forward, and I'm in a Wendy's, and I can't stop crying. I know some of y'all hear that, and you're like, man, that's all that happened to you? And I just want you to know something. If I take this cup right here, Right? If I take this bottle, it's 16 ounces, and I hold it as 16 ounces. But if I hang on to it for 10 minutes, it weighs a lot more than 16 ounces. If I hang on to it for two hours, it's burning my arm. If I hang on to it for, for two, a week, I don't even have the ability to take it. It could literally destroy the muscle. And I'm just telling you, when you're nine years old and something happens and you just hang on to it and you just hang on to it and you just hang on to it, it starts with a little bitty house, but it becomes a mansion, a spite mansion in your life.
And 20 something years later, I'm sitting there in this Wendy's and I'm just weeping. And I finally turned around. I started going the other way. I was like, you know what? I'm already late. So what? I go the other way and I drive into that area. And I remember exactly what court it was. And I walked onto that tennis court. I remember I was just shaking. And I just went to that very place. I remember exactly where it was. It was right where the, where the net was. And I just sat down where my dad had slapped me. And I just put my arms up. And I said, Jesus, I'm inviting you into this moment. When I was in the ninth grade, and shame came over my life. Embarrassment came over my life. And I lifted my hands and I said, Dad, I forgive you. And I got in my car and I drove down. And I didn't call my dad after I, got in the, after I had that moment with God. I didn't call my dad and go, Dad, I just want you to know I forgive you. Because he'd have been like, for what? And I would have said, for the time you hit me, he'd have been like, which one? All right, I'm just telling you. I got in the car and I drove and I never talked to my dad about it. Because honestly, I don't think he has right now the ability to own it. And if I handed him the bill, he'd probably out of shame and embarrassment tell me, I made you a tougher man. And, I, and he, you know, he probably would have looked at that moment and said, you're welcome. But I'm just telling you, there are things that got healed that day that made me a better dad towards my son. There are things that got healed that day that made me a better husband towards my wife. And there's a love that's prospering that wasn't prospering because that day I allowed Jesus to come into the ninth grade. I allowed Jesus to, by the way, you know what Jesus said to me through that? I never, I, I was there all along. You didn't know me, but I knew you. When that happened to you, I wasn't asleep at the wheel. When that happened to you, I was right there in that moment. And you don't think it's possible, but it's possible that you can find healing right now in that place. And can I tell you this? Can I tell you this? I always thought that I needed him to say, I'm sorry. And Jesus said, why would you settle for I'm sorry from him when instead from me, you're getting, I'm here. And that's bigger. And the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Can I get you to pray with me just wherever you are? Listen, I see a lot of tears. And I see a lot of people like this moment saying, man, this is really uncomfortable. But I want you to know that when we say from the Northridge family that we want to help you with your marriage. We want to help you with your parenting. We want to help you be a better witness at work. A part of that sometimes is when we come to this moment and we say, you know what? Forgiveness is never fun, but it can become freeing. And a part of that is that God has so much more for you. And some of you are hanging on to a spite house. Some of you are hanging on to something that was 16 ounces of hurt that's now become 200 pounds of untrust. And you came in here today and you underestimated maybe the power of the hurt, but maybe even bigger than that, you underestimated the power of the healer. And he's saying to you at this moment, will you trust me? Can I tell you that beginning to forgive someone does not mean that you're reconciling with them in a way that you would allow them back into an abusive place? Can I tell you that forgiveness is never a guarantee that there would be reconciliation in the relationship? It's letting go of the venom in your heart. But it's not enabling the abuser to keep abusing. Usually when you forgive an abuser, the first thing they want to tell you is now we can get right back in. And, and you, you might not. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do to honor someone that you've forgiven is to call the cops on them.
or to hold them accountable. Sometimes you can forgive someone and the, the godliest thing you can do is to fire them. <laughs> to help them stop hurting other people. But forgiveness is really you, like Nelson Mandela says about forgiveness. You stopping the poison drinking in your own spirit so that you could hurt the one who hurts you. It's giving the keys to the spite house over to Jesus. It's letting him have the microphone in the conversation. It's taking the bill and putting it at the foot of the cross and saying, they're not interested in paying it, but Jesus, you're interested in healing me. Anybody here that's me today? Maybe you didn't even think it was possible, but again, don't underestimate the power of the healing gospel in your life. Man, I've been hurt, and today... Today, I want to begin to trust that God can do that work of taking the first step, inviting Jesus back into that moment right now in this moment. If that's you, will you just stand up? Anybody, I just want to pray for you. I, I think about healing today and what's offered, and I say, man, there's been woundings in my life, and uh, I want to take the first step in allowing the, the power of the gospel to begin its renewing work in my spirit. Anybody else? Anybody else? Some of you are going, David, you don't know what they did. I'm not discounting what they did. Again, you identify the hurt and you condemn it. You don't condone it. But after you condemn it, you, you, you come up with the price and then you, you hand it to Jesus in this moment. It's the first step. Anybody else? Anybody else? Maybe you're hearing this and to be very frank, you're not the one who's been wounded. You're the one who did the wounding. And repentance is in your heart of like, man, I, I'm really awakened today with the hurt that I've caused. And I'm, I have a lot of I'm sorry's to say. But it needs to be first and foremost towards the Lord. Anybody else? Balcony in the front. Just rise up. I want to pray over you. Father, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. It's power, God. Not again just to save us but to also sustain us, not just to heal us in our position and justification with the, with the work of the gospel in our lives, saving healing, but God also in the practical side of healing from earthly circumstances where pain was afflicted. And I pray, God, that now we would just begin to trust you that it's possible, that you'd never neglected us in that moment. We live in a broken world, but that we now ask you to come and mend. I pray over these brothers and these sisters that you would begin that good work in them. They'd breathe lighter. They'd put this at the foot of the cross today. The rest of us, can we stand with these brothers and these sisters? And, um, and let's sing this song together. This is a, really a prayer. Let's pray this together.
that is there uh, these are just songs uh, with pretty piano and guitar either either just talks that really stir up emotion but don't really mean anything or they're true but Jesus you actually are enough you turn scars into beauty marks what happened to me in the ninth grade I get to testify about today in Michigan and it can become a stepping stone in the life of a sister or a brother that if, God, you can be enough for someone with a microphone in their hand, you can be enough for them on the eighth row. And it's never too late. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would realize they're trying to do this on their own. And they can't. They're trying to muster up something out of the natural when, God, you've called them to a supernatural salvation. So we pray that today they'd come to know you, give their life over to you. If someone here knows you, God, and this, this stirs up a lot of emotion about a, a hurt, I pray that they would take the first step, the courage to God, to take the first step to say, Jesus, I know you're able. I trust you. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better mom. I, I want to own it and walk in it because you have more for me. We pray this in your name. Look at me just for a second. Um, I, I hope you see the hope in what is today. Again, when we talk about freedom, sometimes it doesn't sound fun. Forgiveness is never fun. It's always dealt before it's felt, right? It's a conscious effort to release and to let go. And I just believe that today God has more for you. And do the work. 
I've learned a lot. I've, I've spent a lot of money on counseling recently. <laughs> and um, if you want to talk about some of this, I'd love to connect with you. Uh, I guess one good way to do it is um, if you want to just DM me, uh, I'm at David Nasser, N-A-S-S-E-R. All right, at David Nasser on Instagram or David Nasser on Twitter. DM me and I'd, I'll, I'll give you some of the resources that God's recently given me. Um, in dealing with steps of forgiveness and, and, and steps of reconciliation and, and rules to, to govern by with boundaries on how to do that in a way where you're not enabling the herder to keep hurting. And so I'd love to give that to you. Uh, one last thing too, the next time I'll, I'll get to be in this room is uh, when uh, my best friend and I are gonna be on con in concert here on March the 2nd. Chris Tomlin is gonna be here on March the 2nd and uh, I get to be a part of that night with him and so I'm excited to come back. So I wanted to uh, just bring to light that we're gonna be together at this night and it's gonna be a pretty special night. So we'd love for you to be there. Your church, by the way, has the spirit of hospitality. I sense that every time I come as a guest. But also just the fact that you would just on a random Thursday night open up your building. That's a lot of work for your staff just to host the city and these kind of things. I love that about Northport. Thank you for your kingdom mindset. Thank you for being a host of the city. But come be a part of that if you want, all right? Can I pray over you? Um, can I just tell you, um, some prayer team folks are gonna be up here in the front. And some of you don't need to rush out of here and get Super Bowl-minded, all right? You just need to like, just for five minutes, slow down, come up, maybe have someone pray with you. There's something that's stirring up here. And, and this isn't concert, y'all. This is a worship gathering. It's a bunch of messed up people. Amen? And, and um, this is a safe place for you to land and to find someone to pray with you. If you just sense that, like, man, I just want someone to intercess, you know, um, please come forward and find someone to pray with you. All right? I, I, think, it, I think you'll see that God will use that to, to pour into your life. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for um, the power of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for healing. We really believe you're, you're more than enough. We really believe it's possible. Miracles are possible. Do that, we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you, Northridge. Thank you. God bless you. Go with the Lord.